And as with the Lord's help, we hope to examine verses 11 to 13, but we'll read the whole chapter together. The prophet Malachi, chapter 2, and reading from verse 1 for the whole chapter. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed, and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it, And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me, and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips." He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts." Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah hath dealt treacherously. And an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts, And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Why? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion, and the wife of thy covenant, and did not he make one? Yet has, yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, that is, divorce, For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment. Amen. And may it please the Lord to bless the reading, the public reading of his word to us this evening. As I mentioned, the verses we hope to examine with the Lord's gracious help this evening on verses 11, 12, and 13. Before we read them again, we will call upon the name of the Lord in prayer, please. Almighty God, may we receive grace from Thee to tremble at Thy word. 
to love thy word, to know thy word and to obey thy word. And we pray for thee to do that which we cannot, and that thy word will be planted this evening, and that we may understand what thou art saying. Thou didst say to thy people then what thou sayest to us this evening, what thou sayest to us personally, and that thy spirit may give application that are not even, that are not even suggested from the pulpit. That thou would help us, O God, to hear thy word, to be humbled by it, to believe it, that we be changed by it. And that thou would receive all the honor and all the glory. So we pray, O Lord, for the humbling of our spirits and the exalting of Christ this evening. And that thou would give unto me all that is needed to preach clearly and to preach with power and the power of the Spirit, give clarity and utterance and thought. Pour out thy Spirit upon me, O Lord, who is worthy for these things, who is sufficient, who is able. No one but my sufficiency is of God. So give that help unto us all, to preacher and hearer alike, to the glory of the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So verses 11 to 13 of Malachi 2. You might notice, depending on your copy of your edition of the Bible, that verse 11 that begins with a new paragraph in the Hebrew text, sort of like a backward P. That says there's a new paragraph, and this completes a small paragraph at verse 14 begins with a new it's a new it's an individual section that we have in the hebrew and that often suggests to us as we read it that it is a section apart a pericope as we might say verse 11 then of chapter 2 of malachi judah hath dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in israel and in jerusalem for judah hath profaned the holiness of the lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Amen. So as I mentioned uh, before we read those three verses, this is a, 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 a section apart, this verses 11, 12, and 13. But of course it's not completely uh, ripped out of its own context. Of course it's still the prophet Malachi, still speaking and prophesying toward the people of God. In some ways, it's broader than just the priests, the Levitical priests, but we see that in the context that he does still speak to them directly. And it does come forth from verse 10. Verse 10 says, Have we not all one Father? Hath not God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers. So we see then in verse 11, 12 and 13, that this goes forth from that very idea of dealing treacherously and breaking covenant, breaking the covenant. So no longer a direct rebuke against the Levites, because we see here that he speaks of Judah, he speaks of Israel, he speaks of Jerusalem and various levels of society uh, therein. And there are two great issues that deserve uh, the people's uh, rebuke by the Lord in the remainder of the chapter. And we read those together. Uh, and firstly, we had the wrongfulness of marriages with heathen women. Uh, and we, we begin to look at a little bit of that uh, here. Uh, but that's not covered entirely, but it will be. And then the frivolous divorces 
uh, that we're allowed. So there's those two things of marriages with, with the profane, with the, with the heathen, and of divorces uh, with, the, with the children of Israel. So the, uh, they divorce the, the, the women of the covenant and go to heathen women and choose them instead. That's the connection, you see. But we look at all of those in, the, in turn as we go through uh, this chapter in the coming weeks. Both of which, though, are examples of dealing treacherously with your brother, with your fellow Israelite in this context, dealing treacherously uh, with them. And so we understand that when we see all this, uh, what is happening, that there is a a rebuke given to the church of God in the Old Testament. They're breaking covenant. They're being unequally yoked. They are entering into marriages with those that are not of the Lord's people, have not, have not repented of, of heathendom, haven't repented of false religion and come to Jehovah, have not done what Ruth did and desire that Naomi's God would be her God, that she would be one of Jehovah's people. They haven't done that. They have not turned away from the devilish religion, false religions that they have been following, and the people of God take them as their wives. And so we see as we open up these verses, verses 11, 12, and 13, that there are a number of sins that are pointed to, and it carries on to the end of the chapter in those two main sins that I mentioned. And so what we're looking at this evening, and I've given it a fairly general title of sin within the church, sin within the church. And as we uh, look at verse 11, and we read it together, we see firstly the sin of the entire church. The sin of the entire church, the Old Testament church in the time of Malachi. What do we read then? Judah hath dealt treacherously, an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. So Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, essentially the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, and the old capital of the united kingdom of the people of God. The whole, and you might think to yourself, well, how can there be any of Israel left? Surely they were taken away uh, 200 years or so earlier by the Assyrians, Uh, but we know that some came back. We know that a number came back. We know in the time under under. Uh, Josiah, I believe, that there were many from Ephraim and from the northern tribes who were invited down to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate, celebrate, sorry, no, it wasn't, it was under the time of, yes, it was under the time of Josiah. At some time, there was invitation that went out to celebrate Passover with the people of God that returned, that that were still in Judah, still in the southern kingdom. And so there were, uh, we, we don't have this disappearing of the ten tribes and that we never see of them again or even worse to then consider them becoming the European peoples. That's uh, completely outside of the scriptures. But we do see them coming back and we see them here in the time of Malachi, and the, the, very, uh, the very beginning of the end, as it were, of, of, New, of Old Testament prophecy that again the whole of the nation is called to. Those that were still... Uh, the remnant of Israel, those had returned from Israel. And we know that, that in the time of the Assyrian captivity that many came from Israel and sought refuge, uh, and, uh, in, uh, sought refuge there in, in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And so they're there and they're speaking of all the people of God. And God's people, you see, were to be a holy people. They were to be a faithful people. They were therefore to be a pure people. And they were both to be pure to God and faithful to Him in keeping the covenant and in loving His neighbor by keeping the moral laws that were contained in that covenant. And yet we see that God says that Judah hath dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. So we see this, these strong words that the Lord uses. It's not light words. We see betrayal, deceit, and abomination in Israel in its entirety. So how do we understand that? Well, they're clearly a backslidden folk. 
They're backslidden. They're no longer keeping the, the strictures of the covenant. And what is the covenant? Well, the covenant, as I've, I, I mentioned in the words of Ruth, that, that Jehovah would be his people's God and his people would be his people. That relationship that was set up, it was formalized in Sinai in Exodus 20, the Lord gave his commandment. This is, this is the moral law of my people. It, it, says, it says much about the holiness of God and his, his demands upon his people. And, and it, it is, gives the clear um, protection and limitations for his people. That if you do these things, if you live in the law, you will live. And there's more to be said about that, but we'll just uh, mention that. There is a covenant that's made with the people. And they're no longer keeping the demands of God. They have profaned, that is, they have made unholy. They have made dirty, they have made unclean the holiness of Jehovah's standards. Which means that they have profaned the privileged position that they had. Because they were the elect people of God to be his peculiar people. And again, when we use that word peculiar, uh, modern language only uses a, a negative idea of being strange, but it doesn't mean that. You would say something in another expression, oh, that's peculiarly his, that's peculiarly mine, and that's more the idea of what the original word means. It means it is a personal possession, a personal thing. And, and so when we're called a peculiar people in the Old and the New Testament, that's not an excuse for us to be strange what it means is that we are the personal possession of Jehovah God. We are His personal possession, and we're bought with a price. Yes, He has the right to us as Creator, but He has bought us with the price of the blood of Jesus. But we see they are terribly backslidden. They have begun to marry. They have begun to marry unclean Women. That's what we see at the end of verse 11. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The which he loved is talking about Judah. Judah once loved the Lord. Judah once rejoiced in the Lord. Judah once obeyed the Lord. He loved the holiness of the Lord, if you want to be very strict with the grammar that we have here. Judah loved the holiness of the Lord, but he has profaned it and hath married the daughter of a strange God, the daughter of a devil, we could say, unclean and unholy women who do not love Jehovah, they do not love the service of God, they do not love the grace of God but they would like ritual and they would like self-righteousness and they would like all the wickedness of their demonic religion, but they do not love Jehovah. And they're called not the daughters of heathen men, but they're called daughters of a strange, that is a foreign and unknown God, which should be anathema, should have nothing to do it, with it, which makes the men that do this not just not just treacherous, not just an abomination, but guilty of something we'll look at a little later, they're spiritually adulterous. They've committed adultery against the Lord their God. They have gone off to other religions, to, the, to women of other religions. So they're spiritually adulterous, and they're very arrogant and boastful against the mercy of God. Deuteronomy 21 sees this from afar and says in verses 11 and 12 and says, And seest among the captives a beautiful woman and hast a desire unto her. So the Lord says this very clearly that if you're fighting a battle and you see a foreign woman, there's mercy in what the Lord is about to say as I finish the, the verse. Mercy has been given to the people. And seest among the captives a beautiful woman, and hast a desire unto her, that thou wouldest have her to thy wife. Then thou shalt bring her home to thine house, and she shall shave her head, and pare, that is, cut her nails. You see, the Lord in the law had made it very clear that if there was a woman of the heathen, 
stock and you would have her as your wife. Well, there's a way of getting this. There's a way of doing this, but it's God's way. And first of all, she would be brought, uh, she would be brought, well, as in willing to your house, but she would shave her head. She would humble herself, that she would be, as it were, uh, cleansed in some way. She would cut her nails. She would shave her head, and no doubt this is a reference to certain pagan practices, and, and she would be removed of these things. And then she may become his wife. But that is not what happened. That is not what has happened here. They have gone off to, re- to get heathen women for their boys or for themselves and taken them in all their heathendom, in all their wickedness, in all their godlessness. Now, you might say, you know, maybe this sounds a bit old-fashioned, you know, with, 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 with their wigs and with their paint, faint, painted faces and with their immodest clothing and with their stench of perfume, and they've brought them into the house, into the people of God. There's been no understanding that there needs to be a removal of that which is not of God, that which is of the world is to be washed away, to be cleaned away, to be cut off. And she is to be then found in her right mind and entering into the people of God. She is to become a convert. She is to enter into the covenant. And these are the ways that the Lord has granted. But they have been arrogant towards the mercy that was found even in the law. So God does give a way in. But it must be God's way. It must ever be God's way. Ever be God's way. So we've seen that betrayal, that deceit, that abomination. The language that's used is strong. And secondly, we understand, therefore, they are ignorant of the harm that they're doing to Israel. Ignorant of the harm as they bring bring these godless heathen women that are still devoted to their devils and demons, and they bring them in to the people of God. They're no longer understanding the need for purity of religion and the purity of the people of the book the people of faith, the the purity of that inheritance that they have received under God. They're not considering that. They are not loving their brother and sister in Israel. They have married the daughter of a strange God. And they do not care. They're, They're following their lusts. They're looking with their eyes and only with their eyes and they are become covenant breakers. Just like Adam, their father, a covenant breaker. And just like in Genesis 6 with the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. It's exactly the same understanding. Just like Balaam. Balaam, that, that prophet, the false prophet, who was unable to defeat head on the people of God and, and speak those cursings out. So what did he do? With subtlety, with treachery, Knowing that the people of God were forbidden uh, to intermarry, he sends the heathen girls into the camp, as it were. He draws the, the young boys of Israel out of the camp, the young men, I mean. And so by fornication, by forbidden intermarriage, by unbelief and disobedience, rot was brought into the people of God, and God's wrath was brought upon them for judgment. So we understand that the devil's at work behind this. He's there to undermine the people of God. Not to build them up in their most holy faith. Of course not. He's there to undermine ever a work of the devil. And so this understanding then, if we were to try to understand, well, what is that? We are to be honest. We are not to be profane. We are not to be covenant breakers. And we are not to be selfish in the church of God. These people were being selfish. I I, I desire that woman, I'll bring her in. And they bring lies, you bring heathen religion in, you bring immorality, you you bring a lack of chasteness into the people of God. Polluting the people of God, distracting, tempting the people of God. Is there anything in which we can consider what are we doing that is detrimental to the people of God. I'm not saying we're going to the extremes of immorality, but what are we doing to the detriment of the flock of Christ? And what can we do to the benefit of the flock of Christ? But we see this sin of the entire church before us, 
And as we move on to verse 12, we see that the Lord comes with clear threatenings of excommunication. That's the second point. Threatening with excommunication. And who is threatened? Well, we see a number of uh, people threatened here. Every man is threatened. Every man is threatened. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. See how God deals with the head of the households. We were looking at this morning to some degree. The head of the households are pointed to, are expected to have responsibility for their families. Every man. Every man, and then he gives two examples of every man. He says the master and the scholar, uh, meaning the teacher and the student. We could say the head and the tail. Uh, those who teach and those that follow the teacher. The leaders lead a bit, are guilty for themselves and they're guilty for le- leading others astray. And that's what we see here. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacles of Jacob. You see, it's not that the Lord will cut him off out of the land of the living, but he'll cut him off out of the tabernacles of Jacob. He will be excommunicated. He will be taken out of the land. Now, if there's a, if there's a, if there's a, a thought that would still be very fresh in the people's mind, it is the fear of being taken out of the land and into captivity. It's the second time in this chapter that the Lord uh, points to uh, removing them. Verse 3 says that, and one shall take you away with it. Remember that threat that he had. And the Lord has to threaten because many will not take the Lord seriously. They have the Lord's word, but they will not take it seriously. And therefore the Lord must come with threats. He has made it very clear, he has revealed it clearly in his word how we are to live, how we are to live toward one another, that we are to be a holy people, that we are to be separate from the world and from the devil, that we are to have our own flesh under control, and yet we see that the people, the Old Testament people of God are doing this. We could understand that in the modern sense of, of bringing in false, false doctrines or, 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 or allowing wickedness to fester in the church. And it needs to be dealt with according to the word of God. So he'll cut off the man that doeth this, and then he goes on to the master, that is the teacher and the scholar. So these teachers, these masters in Israel, had little fear for God. James reminds us in the New Testament, he says, he says, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, those that have the role, the God-given role of teaching the people of God must know that they will receive the greater condemnation. And therefore, they must be very careful to speak only the Word of God, to be faithful ambassadors of Christ. And as, an, as you know, an ambassador is only to, it doesn't come with their own ideas doesn't come with their own agenda. An ambassador merely, te- merely speaks to those people he's been sent to what the king or whatever has commanded him, has sent him to do his words. There is a greater condemnation for those that stand and teach. Interestingly then that he says this, the master and the scholar. So those who've been teaching you that it's okay to get heathen women, they are a judge, and those that have listened to them, you are also a judged and found wanting and found in rebellion against God. But you once loved the Lord. You once loved the Lord's standards. You once loved the holiness of the Lord but you've gone and married the daughter of a strange God, and God will cut you off out of the land. But it goes further, not just to, uh, well, he says, every man is the master and the scholar, and then he moves on and says, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. Well, who is it that offers? Well, the the sinner that brings the the offering, the the worshiper, we may say, who brings that offering... They're the one that bring the offering, but who is it that actually 
slaughters the offering, performs the actual sacrifice. It's the priest. So is he, is he speaking to the general worshipper? Or is he speaking to the priest only? Both. Both. Because they both perform uh, that sacrifice together. One brings the offering and the other sacrifices the offering. But certainly bringing the priests into this again. The priests are not, not set apart from this, but we've already understood that the Lord will cut off the man, any man, that does this. The sin of the entire church being threatened with excommunication because you're working against God and for the detriment of the church. And thirdly, what we read there in verse 13 is emotional religion rejected. Emotional religion rejected. And within the context that we read in verse 13, I'm not saying there's no to be no religion with emotion. But this emotional religion rejected. Because what we see firstly when we look at this and understand it, because this is a practice that they're already doing, he says, and, and ye have done this, and this have ye done again. So it, it's a repeated action, what they're doing. And we see they're covering the altar of the Lord with tears. And we say, is that, again, is that the priest? It could be the priest, it could be the supplicant bringing the offering for the priest to slaughter as a sacrifice. It could be either. But the point is, whoever's doing it, they are tearful but unrepentant. They're tearful but unrepentant. They're not truly repentant. They're not believers bemoaning a lack of revival and a lack of holiness because they're remaining in their sin. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 15 says, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And then in the following, in a few verses later, verse 23, And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. And no doubt if you know the scriptures, then you recognize those verses. Now he's not merely pointing to natural disaster, although of course he is speaking of great drought and famine that is being uh, put upon the nation that has turned away from him. But it is also pointing to spiritual disaster. And something we're seeing here maybe, in that there is a spiritual drought, there is a spiritual dryness that they have above them, that, 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 that the heavens are as brass, that they can pray and pray and pray and just know that their prayers, as it were, are bouncing off off, off the sky, they're not reaching heaven because God's judgment is upon them, that these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee, as the Lord said. Rejected prayer and rejected worship, and this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears. So there are genuine tears here. There's weeping and with crying out, insomuch that he that is God regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. Pure worship, biblical worship, is vitally important in our relationship to the Lord, but it's never separate from obedience to God. In fact, true worship is obedience to God, that all things will be done to the glory, whatever you do, Whatsoever ye do, do it to the glory of God. And that's what they are to do, to the glory of God. They are to, they are to pray, they are to worship, they are to keep themselves holy as a nation. They are not, not to bring heathendom and not to bring trollops, as it were, into, uh, uh, into paganism or immorality. They're not to bring that into the land. They're to keep themselves pure and they're to have love towards the brethren. And then they come to God with these stained, with these unrepented sins, laid down by sins, and yet they have not repented of them, but they are not so insensitive that they do not have that feeling, that knowledge, that, that, that experience 
that God is not listening. He has, as it were, turned his back upon them, and they're cognizant enough in their own prayer life to know there is something that stands between me and God. Sin. It is always sin. Sin comes between us and God. It came between mankind and God, between mankind and God in Genesis 3 in the fall into sin. And that is ever the case as we, as we are born and even after our rebirth. What is it that disrupts the fellowship between us and God? What is it that disrupts fellowship or friendliness between you and anyone? If someone has done you wrong, that makes it difficult. And when they've done you seriously wrong, there isn't that, there isn't that friendliness and that warmth anymore. Un- unless they were to come to you and say, listen, you know what I said? I shouldn't have said it. It was really wrong of me. Would you forgive me? And, th- and that's what we must do to the Lord. When we are cognizant, when we understand that we have sinned against him, we must also seek peace. We repent, we confess, we pray for forgiveness for Christ's sake. But this emotion that we're seeing here is an emotion that is in some ways a frustration that God is not receiving uh, their sacrifices, that, that God is not receiving their prayers, that, that when they come with those sacrifices, they're not feeling their conscience being relieved because the sin is still there. And they may think, well, we've got rid of this sin and that sin and this sin, but the Lord's saying, but no, you've brought immorality into the camp. You've brought heathendom into the camp. And you're not repenting of that because you love your Amorite woman. You love your Canaanite wife. You love your Assyrian, but they are not of my covenant. And they haven't been brought into my covenant in the way that I have demanded. But we do see much emotion. It is emotion, I would say, that is driven by the flesh because it is not driven by a heart seeking fellowship with God. They're not seeking fellowship with God on God's terms, which is that you will be holy people as I am holy. They're coming to God. They're still doing the religion. They're still doing everything. They're still very strict with it. They're still coming to the temple. They're still coming and bringing a sacrifice. But there is no true peace between them and God because there is a lack of true repentance. And so this emotion driven by the flesh and not by God's Spirit is not only actual fake spiritual emotion, but it deceives them. They're deceived. But as we see here also, it's rejected. They are deceived by their emotions, and it is rejected by God. You see that? As we read verse 13 again, and this have you done again. Covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. You're not, you're not pleasing the Lord. In fact, you're increasing judgment against you. But what it also points is not only are they tearful but unrepentant, but secondly, they have sorrow instead of joy. They have sorrow instead of joy. They have no joy of their salvation. They have no, as I mentioned, they have no peace with God at that moment because of unrepented of sin. But they have no joy of their salvation. They're coming into church, as it were, to use that expression, with a miserable face, as if the good news is bad news. I mean, regardless of what the witness must be for people outside, they see people going to church and they're, they're looking morose that God loves you and he has saved you from your sins and he has opened your eyes and then morose and sad. Not that we have to have a forced, cheesy grin on our face like certain charismatic uh, uh, churches might encourage you to. Always look happy. We're not always happy. But there is a joy. There should be a joy, brethren and sisters. 
There should be a joy, and often that will express itself. But they have no joy. A thing that is commanded by the Lord in both Testaments. Psalm 100 and verse 2, a very well-known psalm, to serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. That's how glad we are. We're singing. We've been brought into, in, into singing the, the, the Lord's uh, glory and praise. Uh, but where is their joy? What are they focused on? Well, the Lord's not hearing them, it seems. The Lord's not accepting the sacrifice. The Lord's not cleaning the, uh, or soothing their conscience. Uh, they're calling upon Him. Their, their time of prayer is, if they even get to a time of prayer, is not a time of prayer that rejoices the heart. They're brought to weeping and to tears and to crying out. You could say that they're focused on earthly things and not on heavenly matters. They're certainly forgetful of God's gracious dealings with them. We could say this is a terrible mix of people. This is a mix of false converts. This is a mix of the backslidden. Uh, this is a mix of the rebellious. And others that have, that have not held firm, that have compromised, that have compromised uh, with other believers there in Israel that they know that this is wrong, they know that the Scriptures have said it wrong. Maybe it's their uncle, maybe it's their son, that they've taken it in, and yet they've not stood up. They've not stood up against it. Calvin says on that particular verse, verse 13, he says, All wept and groaned before the altar, because they saw that they came there without any advantage that their sacrifices did not please God, and that the whole worship was in vain, inasmuch as God did not answer their prayers. So the sin of the entire church, or at least all parts of the church are touched by it, the Old Testament church, threatened with excommunication by God Himself. Thirdly, their emotional religion rejected. And fourthly, as we close, your spiritual adultery. Your spiritual adultery. You know, we are all covenant breakers by nature. All covenant breakers by nature. Romans 3 and verse 23 makes that very clear. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've come short of the standards of God that would give Him glory because we've broken His covenant. And how do we understand that then? Well, to two, two sorts of people then. To every creature that this God has made has become a covenant breaker because all fell in Adam and with Adam. We're all breakers of the covenant of life or the covenant of works. Adam did it first, and as we're born and as we live and as we, we grow up, we, we prove it with everything that we do, that, that, that we are, by nature, we are godless. By nature, we're Sabbath breakers. By nature, we're, we are dishonorers of our parents. We're liars. We hate. We have murder, at least in the heart, etc., Breakers of the covenant of life, shown clearly. And death is therefore written up, the ultimate excommunication, shall we say, from earth, that you will die, that God will cleanse you off this earth. The very personal removal. Death is written up for every member of mankind. Look, you're growing up, young woman, young boy. You're growing up, but that just means you're aging. That just means you're advancing toward the grave because you've sinned and come short of the glory of God. Behold your aging, behold your spiritual deadness, and behold the graveyards where every sinner goes. A great a clarity of truth, a very solemn truth that all 
have sinned and therefore all will die. Uh, Paul, in the letter to the Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, as he quotes the Old Testament truth, he says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So we have that curse upon us as members of the race of Adam. But also to every covenant member, breakers of the covenant of the church. So we have that, that, that covenant in Adam, but there is a covenant that is laid upon all those that enter into the church. So every member of the covenant... Covenant is not the same as election. But breakers of the covenant of the church. And that's what we're seeing very much so in verses 11, 12, and 13 here. That there is sin, and the sin has not been repented of, and the sin is performed again. And this have you done again. And there's a lack of true repentance. And this is the place where there should be repentance. Repentance should be written upon the walls. Maybe Will will do that at some point. That the, it should be the heart and the rule and the law of the, of the kingdom of God's covenant with his people. That it's a place where there's not only holiness but repentance. Because that is demanded upon those that have the great privilege to be drawn into the covenant. To become one of God's covenant people. But we see here that there is a lack of true repentance. And notice that their worship has been so denied that they have a lack of an acceptable sacrifice. But thirdly then, let us consider the covenant redeemer. We who have broken the covenant, there is one that has been sent to bring a new covenant, to restore the old covenant, as it were, in himself. Christ. Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the man of Nazareth, the God-man himself, has come to restore that which we have broken. We have broken fellowship with God. We have broken trust with God. We have broken the laws of God. And yet Christ himself comes to restore this. He restored, as it were, the covenant of works in himself. What do I mean? I mean, here Christ comes, he's born into the world because of the way he was born, the virgin birth. There was no sin and corruption in him. And so therefore he could live that life that every member of mankind should have lived a sinless life, a God-honoring life, a life of truth. There was no, no, no deception, no lie to be found in his mouth. Pure and honest, and he lived that life that you and I should have lived. The covenant of works or the covenant of life, whichever one you want to call it, Shall we say it was fulfilled in him, it was restored by him. Where the first Adam, our forefather, failed us. And as we in him also fell, Christ as the second Adam restores all things in and of himself. Romans 5 and verse 19, the, the second part or the second two-thirds of, of Romans 5 really go into this in more depth. We're not going to read it all tonight. Our brother read it a few weeks ago in his preaching. But Romans 5 and verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Let's put our hand up. That is us, each and every one, without any exception. So by the obedience of one, that is Christ, shall many be made righteous. We may say this, that the broken covenant of works that Christ fulfilled and restored in himself has become in him a covenant of grace. 
Because were we in and of ourselves, in our religion, in the sin that is between us and God, not being able to bring anything that pleases God, in so much that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand, is that we sinners who can do nothing to save ourselves, but God has sent his Son, and he is the acceptable sacrifice. And you know what's even more glorious? He is the acceptable priest to perform the sacrifice. Christ, the sacrifice pleasing to God, Christ, our new covenant, our new, might we say, peace agreement with God. Hebrews 8 uh, and verses 8 to 10 uh, speak on these matters. Hebrews 8, uh, verses 8 to 10, as Paul, as he's writing to the Hebrews, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, and he says this, For finding fault with them, Hebrews 8 and verse 8, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. So we see what we're reading in Malachi is is what's being described here, not only in Malachi, but that is certainly an expression of it. We will continue with verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, a restored covenant with your Creator who then declares through Jesus Christ to be your Redeemer. And so instead of like the, 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 the stubborn worshippers there in Malachi is trying to come to God on your terms, but your sin is still between you so that he does not regard your offering, you come to Jesus. You come to the Lord. You come and lay hand, as it were, upon this new sacrifice, this acceptable sacrifice, this covenant-restoring sacrifice. And become washed in the blood of the Lamb. Christ said in Matthew 26, verses 27 to 28, as we're considering the Lord's Supper, we will next week, God willing. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. It's to you, he says. Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, of the new covenant, which is shared for many for the remission of the sins. So all the covenant breakers in this room, whether covenant breakers uh, merely by creation or also by covenant because you, you have uh, been baptized into the church, but your sin is between you and God. You, you have not got that sweet forgiveness of your sins. You know that when you approach the Lord, that he regardeth not the offering, that there is, there is a, a brazen heaven above, that your prayers seem to go up but also come down again. They seem to be rejected you need an acceptable sacrifice. You need the blood of the New Testament. You need to drink ye all of it. You need to come to God with him or in the name of him who is the restorer of the old covenant, the, 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 the builder of a new covenant. and to find forgiveness of your sins. These did not yet find forgiveness in verse 13. And this have you done again. No repentance, but you must repent. You must turn away. They must turn away from their sin. They must turn away from their, their profanity, from their unholiness and all that they were doing 
against God and against their fellows in the church. But you must come and seek that forgiveness to be found in Christ for our lack of repentance, for our lack of joy for salvation, for our lack of forgiveness and, and the soothing of our consciences. These things we do not have by nature. We must have them from God in Christ. So once again, the gospel command goes out to turn from sin and to turn to God in and through Jesus Christ. You call upon his name. It is not in and of itself difficult because God has done all the work. He sent his son. He had him crucified. He raised him from the dead. He drew him back up into heaven. He sent his spirit. He poured it out on the church. He sends forth his apostles. He sends forth preachers to tell you of the forgiveness to be found in Christ. God has done it all. And people will often say, it sounds too simple. Well, if somebody else has done all the work, of course it's simple. You merely go to God on his terms. Come unto me, the Lord says. He doesn't say, come unto me, and then we'll put you on the cross for a few hours, and we'll do this, and we'll do that, and you have to do this, and have to do that. Come unto me, because he has done all the work. So repent. Seek repentance of your unbelief. Seek seek repentance and forgiveness for all your sins. But you must come to God through Christ. He is the acceptable sacrifice for your soul's this evening. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's it. Calling. These were calling, but they were not repentant. They were weeping. and There was emotion in their calling, but they did not call upon the name of the Lord with a repentant heart. How penitent must you be? Some penitence. Does the Lord give you a list and say it has to be 80%? How would you even gauge what that is? No, you must come repentantly to God. That's all he says. Because you don't know the half of it. You don't know, the, you don't know 1% of your wickedness before God. Not only is your sinful memory holding it back from you, but you're too dead to realize it. Don't worry, you worry. You come to the Lord, he will reveal these things to you. That you will give him more glory. Lord, how did thou save such scum? I didn't realize how corrupt I was. Praise the name of God. But you come repentantly toward him. You do what he says. Call upon the name of the Lord. And thou shalt be saved. God's not a liar. He's not a deceiver. He's not out to tease you. He's not out to confuse you. He has said it very clear. He has done it all. And he just beckons you to come and may God seal that word to you and to your eternal salvation this very evening having heard it do not forget it do not walk out of this building let us now seek the Lord together and may you and your soul call upon him even now as we pray Our Lord, we come before thee in the name of the Saviour, in the name of the sacrifice for sin, in the name of the second Adam, in the name of the Redeemer. And we come before thee, Lord, and we pray, have mercy upon our souls. Thou knowest, O Lord, where even thy people have become backslidden and have become hardened toward thee. But Lord, those who covenantly may be thy people, but are stuck in their sins and do not have that forgiveness of their sins. Lord, thou must do it. Will thou draw us into repentance? Will thou draw us to the cross? Will thou draw us to call upon the name of the Lord? Lord, have mercy. Save many souls this evening. Open those hearts that only thou canst open. Bring new life. Deliver from the kingdom of Satan and bring them into thine own kingdom. O Lord, 
increase the numbers of thy kingdom, even in those who are listening tonight. We do pray for the convicting work of the Holy Ghost in us all. We all need that convicting work that we would be convicted, that some of us would be restored from backsliding, that some of us would be converted to Jesus. Lord, he has done all the work and he has done it so well. It is finished, he said. Oh God, enable us uh, to know that finished work applied to ourselves. For we pray in the name of Jesus and may it be to his glory and to the salvation of souls tonight. Amen.